Have you ever um, mistaken a person uh, for someone else? Maybe that's why you're sitting to the person next to you. Don't look at them. (laughs) Maybe you thought it was somebody different. But if you've had that experience, you know when you walked up to them confidently without hesitation and you started talking to them like you were old friends or colleagues at work, only to have them stop you and say, "Um, I'm sorry, I just don't know who you are. Or maybe you'll probably have the opposite effect where you just keep listening or they just keep listening to you, trying to remember, think, is that you? Is that, am I supposed to know you? Or something like that. But an experience like that, many of you know, can be both embarrassing and it can be humorous at the same time. You look risking dumb and offending someone at the same time time. But friends, when we are mistaken about who Jesus is, it is more than embarrassing. It's tragic. And so we learned back in chapter 7 of this gospel, Matthew's gospel, the outcome of this tragedy. Remember in chapter 7 when Jesus says to those who think they know him, but they don't, He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He didn't say, I used to know you, or I kind of know you, or I'd like to get to know you better. He says, I never knew you. I never. Friends, knowing who Jesus is, is the most important question you and I will ever have to answer. And it goes far beyond just this, uh, this uh, bookwork knowledge. I think a little bit what we'll see today in the text is you have these disciples who have been following Jesus, and yet, did they really know him? Makes you wonder. Probably a lot of people going to church who grew up. Have you ever heard people use that phrase, I grew up in church? who grew up in church and yet don't know him, who asked Jesus into their heart and yet don't know him. Knowing Jesus is the most important question you and I can ever and will ever come to terms with and answer. Now that might sound ridiculous to those who are seeking or skeptics or maybe even some Christians. However, this question of who is Jesus has been the ultimate question, the one the entire Bible is seeking to answer and pointing to ever since we see here in Genesis 3.15 this whisper that there will be one coming, someone. No one knew when or no one knew how he'd come, but the promised one would come to defeat Sin and death and crush the head of the nasty snake. They wondered if it was Cain. Eve saying, the Lord has given me a man. A seed. She wondered if it was him. Then they wondered if it was Noah. Moses. David. Then they looked to John the Baptist. Is that him? They kept looking. The people of God have always been looking for this man and asking, is that him? From the inaugural 
moment that the shepherds showed up claiming that the angels had told him about his birth to the disciples being astonished at his power, which we're going to look at this morning, to the day the sun itself stopped shining when Jesus died, everyone has been left asking, who is this man? Who is this man? Now, I'd agree, and you probably would too, that if Jesus was just another guy, then knowing him makes no difference at all. But, friends, if Jesus is who he says he was, if he is the promised one that all the scripture is pointing at, if Jesus really is the Son of God and the only Savior of the world, then knowing him makes all the difference. Maybe you've come here this morning knowing a lot about Jesus. Matter of fact, so much so that you've come without any kind of hope or expectation to, to see him any better. Because you've got a crystal clear view of your Savior. There's no room in your intellect or in your affections to be stirred up to be amazed at Jesus anymore. If you're like me, sometimes that's how I come to church. But maybe you've come here knowing very little about him or nothing at all. Either way, friends, my prayer and hope is that all of us will leave this morning more amazed by Jesus. I love the way one preacher says it. He says that Jesus will be big in your heart and mind after today. And boldly, we will be able to proclaim with Paul, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, if you haven't already, I want to invite you to make your way to Matthew's gospel in chapter 14 so that we can closely look at who this man is. This is a very familiar passage, one that you've heard a lot and And you probably will just skim over it, but I want you to gaze at Jesus as we look at this text. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one somewhere around you, uh, maybe under one of the seats uh, near you. Uh, The page is 820 if you want to follow along. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, I think I can say this with confidence, take one of those home as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have uh, one of those Bibles. But our passage today, it takes place on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his 12 make their way to the northwest shore, somewhat, we learn this in John's gospel, fleeing, if you were, from the 5,000 plus crowd with full bellies who, who wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king. Many of you as I said, will know this account. You've read it a thousand times. You've heard it preached. Sunday school teachers, have you ever colored this picture? Jesus walking on the water, Peter getting out of the boat. Children, you guys have heard this story, right? Yes? Maybe you've seen paintings like this, or you have one in your house. Christian painting where Peter is walking on the water. It's Jesus walking here and Peter uh, courageously getting out of the boat. Maybe you've heard preachers allegorize this story and make this passage mainly as an example of what true discipleship looks like. 
with the sermon title that says, just get out of the boat. That's what it's about. Or maybe you've heard this preached as all you need to do is have a little bit more faith. If the disciples had more, if Peter had more faith, then he would have been able to walk on water. And like any misreadings, we find elements of truth, but the main thrust, I believe, that Matthew is leading his readers to is who is this man? Who is Jesus? Now, if you're note takers, you'll notice I didn't put any outline there. It's because I didn't have an outline when they printed that. But when I want you to walk through, you can practice your note taking here, and we want to unpack the passage by looking specifically at what Jesus does and how the disciples respond to him. So first, let's notice that Jesus made them leave. Verse 22. Verse 22, it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Notice that the text says he made the disciples get into the boat. That verb for made is not one of a uh, strongly suggesting or passively recommending them to get on their way. No, it is a forceful word, a sovereign word where he's taking control and he's ordering them to do something, to go to the other side. And in the moment, the disciples probably didn't think much about it. It wasn't that unusual of a directive from the master. But later on, it probably became clear as it does to us that Jesus, God in the flesh, knowingly sent them into a storm. After an exhausting day of ministry, feeding 5,000 They were not led to rest beside quiet waters or to lie down in green pastures, but they were made to row against battering waves most of the night. Verse 24 goes on to say that the boat was a long way from the land. Now, rowing or sailing was no problem for these disciples. Four of them were fishermen. And they would have known and been familiar with the wind and sailing at night. But the text says that they stopped making progress. And we know this because it says that it was in the fourth watch of the night. This is uh, three hours before sunrise. They started sailing and started getting to the boat at sunset. And they've been sailing for a long time. We know that they've been painstakingly going against the wind for at least nine hours. Now, if you've ever been uh, deep sea fishing, you know that the rain isn't the problem, right? It, rain just hits the boat and runs off the side, but if, the, but if there's wind, if there's wind, the waves get bigger and bigger and there's no protection for a small boat against these giant waves. And the disciples... It says we're struggling to make headway. They were in turmoil in the wind. Friends, this is the same wind, mind you, that we've already seen in Matthew 8 that Jesus controls when he calms the seas. There are many similarities if you were to go back 
and put Matthew 8 and Matthew 14, this passage, side by side, you can see their time in the boat. But the main difference, which I believe is no accident, is how the disciples respond. In verse 27 of chapter 8, the disciples, after watching what Jesus has done, after he calms the storm, remember that story? He was sleeping, they were afraid, he wakes up, he says, so similar to this passage, oh you of little faith, and he calms the storm. He tells the wind to stop. And they respond, what sort of man is this? What sort of man is this? In other words, they are saying, who is he? Who is Jesus? Now, I like one writer commenting on how Jesus made them go. Made them leave, says the sovereign Lord sometimes intentionally sends us when we're already weary to struggle against adversity and disorienting darkness. Friends, according to the Bible, there is no question that God sovereignly ordains trials in our lives. At various points, in order that he might reveal his character and nature to us in ways that we would never know apart from a storm. If we were never in the middle of a storm, if we were never caught in sin and in death, we would never know the grace of God, the mercy of God, the saving nature of God. So brothers and sisters, it is, it is so crucial that in the face of the trials that you are in, the difficulties that you are in, when the circumstances of your life begin to toss you back and forth across the waves of this world, that you remember the precious truth that the Lord summons the storms and rescues his people from them. You must remember that the Lord summons the storms and rescues people from them. Look at what Jesus does next. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, what does it say? He came to them walking on the sea. Jesus came to them. After a great deal of time in prayer, which uh, a couple weeks ago, Asher touched on that piece of, of how Jesus got alone and prayed. He spent time in prayer. Jesus, knowing their plight, it says that he comes to them. And that's what Jesus does. He leaves the realms of glory to be born in the likeness of men. He goes after. He seeks his lost and wayward sheep. He leaves the 99. And, and if he's leaving 99, what does he have to do? He has to come to the one. He takes the initiative. He's not sitting, waiting and saying, hey, I'll wait for you guys to come to me. Because you see, friends, in our sin, none of us would come to him. Romans chapter 3 says that no one seeks after God. No one goes after him. All of us are like sheep that have strayed off. None of them turning around and saying, you know what, it's probably not good for us to be over here. So he comes to us. Now, 
While the disciples certainly do not perceive it at first, make no mistake, this act and the way Jesus does it, the way he comes to them, attests to his deity, to who he is. Just consider how Jesus mirrors what we read about Yahweh in the Old Testament. I'll read these for you, but you can jot them down. Look look at Job 9 verse 8. Here Job confesses that the Lord, get this, tramples the waves of the sea. Then in Job 38 verse 16, we see the Lord answering Job. And he says, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Or what about Psalm 77, 19, where he says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Isaiah 43, 16 says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Not to mention the great exodus from Egypt where God delivers his people by What does he do? Walking them through the sea. It says in Exodus 14, 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord, and the Lord did this work, and the Lord grew the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. I wonder, friends, can you see this dramatic picture? Jesus With no GPS system. And that would have been hard conditions. you got wind whipping around. You've got uh, his rain. You've got uh, his hair in his face. Whatever the scene might be here. Without GPS, he divinely locates the disciples. And then calmly, he strolls from one eight-foot wave to the next as the wind and rain continue and whip around him. However, Jesus is coming to them, caused the disciples panic rather than help. Caught them off guard. They didn't even recognize him at first. Look at Matthew 14, verse 26. Instead of saying, hey, Jesus, there you are, they say, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. Can I say real quickly, the way in which The disciples are going about trying to identify Jesus. Is that really him? Is often how many of us wrongly try to do it as well. You see, in the midst of the storms, in the midst of turmoil and exhaustion, when our marriages are struggling and falling apart, when our kids are choosing lifestyles and values that don't resemble Christ and his gospel, when our local news reports, like it did this last week, a violent and horribly gross sin that happens. Friends, we must not formulate our position on who Jesus is based on the common thoughts of the day, on superstitions. That's what was happening. These disciples, it's a ghost, of course, because it had to be a ghost, because who else could stand on top of water? But also that was the superstition in the Greco-Roman world. That in the deeps, in the water, there was this this depth down there. And people were going to die. And it's it's horrible. 
So many times we try to formulate who Jesus is based on all these things around us, this circumstantial evidence, instead of what we should be doing must only identify Jesus by a theologically formatted or uh, formulated belief that is rooted in Scripture. Let me say that again, friends. If you are trying to figure out in your life who is Jesus and you're looking to other sources outside of Scripture, not that they won't be helpful in some way, but you have to find the identity and person and work of Jesus that is rooted in Scripture alone. This is what the disciples failed to do, I think, in some part. So let me ask you, are you looking to the Bible to determine what you believe about Jesus? Are you looking to God's Word to evaluate the storms that you are going through in life in light of who Jesus is, in light of the fact that he sent his disciples, he made them go into the storm, and then he came to them. Verse 21, in their misconceptions of who Jesus is, they cry out in fear, and at once Jesus corrects them, and he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I, this self-identifying short little utterance, it is I, it allows for at least two interpretations. First, it's kind of like uh, when my kids uh, knock on the door and I say, who is it? And they say, it's me. Now, if you have more than one kid and they kind of sound the same, you're like, okay, who's me? But they're expecting you to know their voice. They're expecting you to know who they are just by the simple, it's me. So I hear my daughter say, it's me. And I'm like, okay, I know who it is. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, friends, it's me, relax. And on the other hand, the hand that I think Matthew seems to be pointing out to his largely Jewish audience is that this language Jesus uses is directly echoing God's revelation of himself. Faithful readers of Scripture would pick up on this phrase, it is I, it is translated the same way that God identifies himself as I am. The great I am. Genesis 17, 1, God says, I am God Almighty. In Isaiah, he says, I am I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Above all these, in Exodus 3, we see this declaration as Moses is standing in the bush that won't stop burning. And, he, and, and God says, go back to Egypt and tell them to let my people go. And he says, okay, who are you? Who am I supposed to tell them is sending me? And he proclaims, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Jacob, or Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then he finally proclaims to Moses, I am who I am. Do you see it? Jesus is clearly revealing himself to his disciples, and it appears and their progression of understanding, it appears that they are getting closer to believing what he said, but they're not quite there yet. Let's look how the disciples respond to all of this. And by all of this, I have in mind both the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. These <clears throat> two go together. 
So look at verse 28. In response to Jesus, Peter, not even 100% certain the figure, who this figure is, he takes a step and he says, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. Perhaps this boldness from Peter is drawing from Jesus' <clears throat> words about his disciples that they are supposed to imitate their master. You remember in chapters 8 and 9, we saw Jesus. He was blending his words and works while the disciples watched. Then Jesus commissions the twelve for their first mission, and he tells them to do exactly what they saw him doing. Jesus went to Israel first, and the disciples must also. Chapter 10. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom in chapter 4, and they must do the same. Chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus freely healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed the lepers, expelled the demons. And then in chapter 10, verse 8, he says, go do it. Do the same thing. And so here, Peter's probably thinking, well, if he's doing it, I'm supposed to be doing it. He gets out of the boat. I think we are to see here in some measure that Jesus expects his disciples to follow his example. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, that is, if anybody wants to walk on the water with me, if anybody is to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then in John chapter 13, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Disciples of Jesus follow Jesus. Are you following Jesus? Would somebody look at your life and say, man, I can tell that you've been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus this week? Have you sat alone with him? Have you talked with him? Have you mimicked your life on his? Have you made your life like his? Peter here, we see him relying on the power and the authority of Jesus and his word. And he gets out of the boat believing, that's not me, it's not my power that would command the waters to stay strong beneath him. And here we see a picture of Peter's growing faith. Although brief, his faith helped him to walk on water. It's, and it's true, the text says it, it's true that when Peter's faith weakened, he what? Verse 30. He sank. He takes his eyes off of Jesus, he panics, and he begins to sink. Church, we need to understand that although Peter succumbed to the fear and he took his eyes off of Jesus, that that is hardly the main point. Prior to studying this text, I probably have used this, and, and maybe there's some good point in that. I would have used this and said, when you look at the circumstances of life around you, when you're in the midst of the storm, and you're fixing your gaze on these things, and you take your gaze off of Jesus, you'll fail or you'll sink. I don't think that's the main point. If you and I, if we're not careful, we may start to think that all we need to do is muster up more faith. If we would just do better, 
the result would be physical healing, financial relief, or some other kind of immediate benefit. Friends, Peter's faith was little, but it was enough if it rested in who Jesus is, his person and work of Jesus. What you and I need to know about faith is that even though Peter failed, and like him, our faith will fail, it will be faithless at times. And we will hear Jesus say, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt me? Why do you doubt that my provision, did you not just see how I provided this meal for the 5,000 plus? Why are you doubting my provision for you? Why are you doubting me and who I am? And when we have those moments, we must remember that Jesus did not fail Peter. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, but Jesus never took his eyes off of Peter. He was safe when he took his eyes off of Jesus because Jesus kept watch over Peter. The the text says in verse 31 that Peter started going down and immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. Jesus was near to him and close to him so that he might grab him when he fails. If you are trusting in Jesus, the perfect and finished work of Jesus, the Bible assures you that nothing can pluck you from his hand. That God is able to keep you from stumbling and making shipwreck of your faith. And that he will guard you and preserve you so that, as Jude 24 says, he may present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Let me ask you, who is Jesus? Like the disciples in the midst of their struggle, their storm, they had to answer this question. How are you answering the question in the midst of the storms that you're facing today? This morning, we've seen demonstrated Jesus' power and his compassion, his provision and his deity as he rescued his disciples, but we didn't answer the question of why. Why is the scripture revealing these things about Jesus? Why is the gospel writer talking about this? Why is Jesus leading them to do this? And I think verse 33 gives us the answer. It says they got back into the boat. And notice that the wind ceased. And instead of being astonished, like they did last time, and say, what sort of man is this? It says those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This word, worshipped, it is a falling prostrate. I'm guessing it wasn't really what they did in the boat. They didn't all just lay down on the ground. But no, their hearts were before the Lord, identifying who he is and proclaiming that to themselves and to the Lord. Truly, you are the Son of God. These friends, the goal of the storms of life, the purpose of your life and of mine, the reason Jesus came to rescue those who, like Peter, cry out, Lord, save me, is so that we might worship him. That's the end goal. 
when we all bow before him and worship. And you can't worship Jesus unless you know him. You cannot worship him unless you know him. That's why we study the word. To get to know him. So do you know Jesus? Here we see at the end of this episode, this narrative, Jesus brings peace to the disciples, to the boat. and Make it to the other side. Guess what? The residents there, they quickly recognize Jesus. And they send word around through the area that he's arrived. And, they, and, the flock, and then the sick flock to him from the entire region so they can touch his garment and be healed. Jesus is so generous to heal those who recognize him but aren't yet his disciples. That's you today. If you are starting to recognize who Jesus is, and I pray that you are, know that he wants you to worship him. Not just as a great guy, not just as your handyman or your mascot, but he wants you to worship him as the son of God, the one who has come so that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Friends, we must come to know that Jesus did not just merely come into the world to deliver us from our sufferings, our hungry bellies, and the dark, windy seas that we must find ourselves in in this present age. No, Jesus comes ultimately to deliver us, to rescue us from the wrath to come. He came not to give us an easy, breezy life now, but eternal life later. What a joy we have as a church to remember and to celebrate and to cling tight to that. And we do that even now as we turn our attention uh, to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father God, your word is true and right and wonderful because you are true and right and wonderful and glorious and holy. All your ways are perfect. And here, as we saw and read this morning, you are, per, you are pointing not just to the elements and to miraculous healings and walking on water. You are pointing to the person and work of your son, Jesus. Jesus, it's you that we want to see and to know. We want to know you so, so much more and intimately. Would you help us, we pray, even now as we come and we partake, as you are with us and call us to remember you and what you have done through your perfect life and your death, your substitutionary death in our place where your body was beaten and broken so that we may have life. Your blood was shed for forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we ask that you teach us more about Jesus. And not only that we would just know in our heads, but we would follow and treasure and adore and our affections of our heart would be stirred more and more so that we can cry out, you are the Son of God and bow down in worship. 
Continue that now, even as we come to the table. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture reveals that on the night that uh, Jesus was crucified, he ate dinner with his disciples. And as they were eating, he gave them this picture or a sign of the gospel, the good news. What Jesus did at the Last Supper was to take bread and wine. He took those common elements, those things that they used for the Passover. He divided the bread and passed it around, passed the wine around as a meal, and he said that they should eat it as in see it as a sign, as a memory, as a memorial of his body and his blood that was given for them. Here at this church, we believe that the Christians should regularly observe, and Scripture teaches that, they should regularly observe a continual act of the Lord's Supper because it points to Christ's death. And at his death, he was killed for us. His blood was shed for us, assuring salvation for all who believe. So Christians are called to be repenting. It's not a one-time act. It's a continual lifestyle. So if you are here and you know you are broken and you know you are unworthy, you know that your faith is, is not what it should be if you were. It's failing. And you believe that Jesus is not failing you today. Then this meal is for you. Take it and celebrate with joy and remember to reorient your heart to the finished work of Christ. Paul says we should also examine ourselves and confess our sin and take the elements with confidence that we are forgiven of our sins. So that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we want to ask you to humbly uh, let it pass you by or don't take the elements today. Don't partake of this significance because it's important And it points to something. It marks out those who are truly believing in Jesus. Instead, use this time to consider what you've heard today. Use this time to consider who is Jesus. Who am I in light of who he is? Consider your need for the gospel and the claims of Christ. If you you want to talk to somebody about that, come talk to me. Come talk to someone else around you. We would love to visit with you uh, about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. But for all of those who are professing to be believers, and your life right now is marked with unrepentant sin, you you don't want to go to Jesus, even though you know that you can. The warnings in 1 Corinthians are um, especially directed towards you, not just how you are to receive the supper, but why we receive it, and the posture in which we receive it. So I want to encourage you too to let the meal pass you by, To hear the warnings of Scripture and not partake, but rather humble yourself before the Lord and repent of your sins. That might mean that you need to go visit with somebody before you partake. That might mean that you need to go um, spend some time alone. If you were under formal church discipline at this church or another church, we encourage you not to take the meal today as well. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then you're going to be invited to, you guys know how this goes, come up and grab the elements. You'll have two cups there, one with the bread, one with the juice. As you come, I want you to remember that Christ died for you personally. And then we're going to take it together and remember that Christ died for us, his people. Right? Let's do that with joy. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful gift, the gift of the table. We long to celebrate and to remember your glorious gospel, what you have done through the person and work of your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to, uh, in in a fresh and new way, find joy and satisfaction and confidence in all that your son, Jesus, is for us. He is our Savior, our King, our Lord. And we worship Him here at the table. Everyone said, Amen.